Welcome to the Harvard on China podcast. I'm James Evans at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies, and in particular, welcome to our new subscribers on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and other RSS feeds. Today's guest is a longtime associate of the Fairbank Center, Professor Rudolf Wagner, an esteemed sinologist, historian, philosopher, and literary scholar at the University of Heidelberg. Professor Wagner has published extensively on China, from Lao Tzu's philosophy to Buddhism, the Taiping Rebellion, China's Republican era, and even contemporary fiction. In 1993, he was awarded the highest German academic award, the Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz Prize of the German Research Foundation. In this podcast, we asked Professor Wagner about his recently published article entitled "Dividing Up the Chinese Melon: Guafen: The Fate of a Transcultural Metaphor in the Formation of National Myth." Which he published in the Journal of Transcultural Studies. This article focuses on the use of history to support contemporary political aims. I started our interview, however, by asking Professor Wagner about his own history with the Fairbank Center and how his interest in China brought him to the United States back in the 1960s. My history with the Fairbank Center goes back a long while because I came first to Harvard in '69 as a Harkness Fellow. Very nice, two years in the United States, and、uh, so I was here. I came back in eighty eighty one, and、uh, on the exceedingly generous invitation of the Fairbank Center to come here and don't teach, don't administer,、uh, don't be up for any grand event, just do your research. I did that here for some three years. And then Berkeley decided to do the same, so、uh, they invited me to go there, which I did. And then Harvard said, "Why don't I come back?" You know, so in '86, I believe, I came back here. So I must say, I have been treated in the most kind and generous manner because altogether, I mean, this gave me something like seven years of pure research time, on which I am parasiting to this very day. You know, so、uh, the Fairbank Center is for me a rather A homey place, you know, and a very supportive place. And now I have sort of a rather continuous presence here since I don't have to teach in Germany anymore because my wife is a professor at Boston University, and so when she's teaching, I'm here. And if she's not teaching, we are in Germany, you know, where I'm somehow still involved with this cluster of excellence,、uh, Asia and Europe in a global context, you know, which I was once a director, and now I'm just sort of a general support prop. Well, seven years. I mean, can you imagine a seven-year postdoc given to somebody nowadays? It's unheard of. Well, I was a bit beyond the postdoc. I mean, I did my my PhD in '69, so I got here. I was somehow in the middle of nowhere, you know. But the interesting thing is that I don't fit the American rather religiously. A segmented division of academic fields. You know, so if you are an economist, you are supposed to be economy, 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 and I don't think that's a very good idea. If you study China, I think you have to have a more integrative approach. And the Fairbank Center, on that point, has been very instrumental of not forcing me into some kind of a straight-laced field like history or sociology or philosophy. But as a matter of fact, saying, "Okay, just do what you do best," you know, and、uh, that's what I then did. Very smart at the Fairbank Center. <laughs> We're going to talk today about a recent paper that you've published entitled "Dividing Up the Chinese Melon: Transcultural Metaphor in the Formation of National Myth." Um, so in this article, you talk about how there's a narrative in the late Qing about foreign powers coming and dividing up China like a melon. So how did the melon metaphor come about? Well, the melon metaphor is a metaphor which does 
occur for uh, dividing up countries already in the warring states period. You know, we have a fourth century BC uh, reference to it, you know, where three states are taking apart, one in the middle, which then disappeared. Uh, so, but this was pretty much the last time it was used, you know, and that uh, didn't become a standard metaphor. It was very rarely and occasionally used in some poetry in the Song Dynasty when parts of northern China were uh, taken over by non-Chinese peoples. So it was pretty much a dead metaphor in terms of that particular application, but it was used very commonly for, let's say, gangsters dividing up their booty or things like that. So it was a kind of a dead metaphor. It's a metaphorical character of which people had, as a matter of fact, forgotten. Next thing was that China was starting to accumulate some knowledge about world history, world geography, as a possible point of reference for its own future. So you see international law, you see other states, how they behave, you see other leaders, how they proceed. And so the main thing there was that there was a long discussion throughout the 19th century on the partition of Poland. And uh, uh, Poland was first partitioned late 18th century and then on and on and on until eventually had disappeared from the surface of the earth as an independent state and was only restored in 1919. So uh, uh, the uh, partition of Poland was then described in Chinese language world histories written by foreigners or by Chinese. And um, for this partition, they used the Milan term. So the melon term looks like the really authentic Chinese metaphor. It isn't, as a matter of fact. It is, in fact, a, a translation term for partition and relates directly to Poland and uh, uh, refers to the point that neighboring powers, as a matter of fact, are partitioning Poland. But the interesting thing is there was already in the Poland discussion a long older discussion in the West among international historians, which was picked up in China, namely, what is the main cause for Poland's partition? And there was one story is that this was basically the greediness of Prussia, Russia and uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The other story was the main cause was internal division. They could not run their own ship and therefore the place was basically becoming a kind of a failed state you know, where then the outsiders say, okay, you know, this is it, you know, each takes the ch uh, chunk, you know, and uh, uh, we are sticking with it, right? So this division, namely who who is the agent in that, you know, uh, became then a main disc discussion in the late uh, 19th, early 20th century, you know, what is the cause for the potential partition of China? Is that the cause internal Chinese problems, divisions, or is this the aggressiveness of foreign powers? Was that the late Qing understanding of the Mela metaphor as well? Because obviously there's a difference between talking about metaphor and then how people understood it back then, the hermeneutics question. The uh, Mellon story was mostly used by people who were critical of the uh, Qing court, of the last dynasty court there. And their main point there was that the cause for a potential partition of China is not the aggressiveness of the foreign powers, but the fact that the Qing court is selling out, is selling out chunks of the country, uh, namely uh, parts of Manchuria to Russia, parts of uh, Hainan and Canton to the French, and uh, then rights on the railway things and so on and so forth. So the main cause for this crisis of China is not the aggressiveness of the foreigners. They only benefit from the internal Chinese division, namely the Qing court selling out whatever is for the highest price coming. But this was a, a, a metaphor very rigidly re restricted 
to the press published by these reformers, and it never made it into a kind of a mainstream uh, metaphor. And their main point, as I said, was the main cause of that is internal. And their, their counterparts, namely the Qing court, was arguing against that and says, you are talking nonsense. No partition is happening, number one. You know, where is it? You know, you're talking about that for the last 10 years, nothing of that's happening. And number two, you are inventing that story only to make us look bad. And in fact, what you're doing is to invite the foreigners to partition China, because that would give you a good point to say, ah, you're right. And the real story is, of course, that the, uh, the, the foreigners themselves were thinking about it too. The discussion had been older. The discussion started already in the 1860s on the question whether the Qing court could hold China together, whether it was able to run it. And already in the negotiations for the Second Opium War, the Tianjin Treaty in 1560, 1859-60, the British negotiators were saying, we are in a terrible situation. We are the winners. Winner takes all. We could take anything we want, but our main interest is not to take anything. Our main interest is to have a kind of a stable commercial environment, which has to be run by a responsible and effective central government. So we are going to support that against this big rebellion in the Chinese South, the Taipings. So they're permitted British uh, individuals like Gordon and others, you know, to support it. And so the maintenance of the territorial integrity of China became a mainstay of British policy, which then was joined by the Americans who agreed with that. And whoever went against it, whether it was first uh, Russia and then Russia and France or eventually Japan, they struck together and said, OK, we are going to prevent that and uh, uh, go against it. So the reality is a bit more complicated than this sort of narrative that we see today, which is that foreign powers came and undermined China, and that's why there was so much stability. Well, there was one moment in the uh, in 1899 after the Qing had given a big secret concession to Russia, that was leaked. So the Germans decided, okay, we are not going to be late. So they they grabbed or leased, as a matter of fact, the Kaohsiung territory, which was made instantly into an international open port, but. On that moment, the British were saying, OK, everybody is grabbing parts. You know, we can't be late. So they suddenly said, OK, we have to do something too. So the British foreign community in China, in the treaty ports, they were inviting a British admiral, Beresdorf, to actually come and investigate the situation. So he wrote a, a wonderful book called The Partition of China, which was based on all these interviews with the foreign community in the treaty ports in China. And the conclusion of the book is the exact opposite of the title, namely everybody and his grandmother is strictly, rigidly and permanently opposed to the partition of China and in favor of territorial integrity and the maintenance of an open environment for commerce. So now this book, interestingly enough, was straight away translated in 1901 into Chinese. And the Chinese title is just wonderful, you know, is uh, Bao Chuan Shu. The, uh, a report on the maintenance of the territorial integrity of China. It's the exact opposite of the original title. But this Chinese title is accurate, you know, because the content of the book is, as a matter of fact, for, te uh, uh, for territorial integrity. So in this story, actually shifted only very gradually and became by the 1920s, when you, as a matter of fact, had something which the reformers 20 years had been missing, namely patriotism and uh, uh, nationalism and so on and so forth, basically after Wilson's sovereignty idea had spread in China. So uh, then suddenly uh, 
the question of who is the guilty part started to shift. And by the 20s and 30s, you have uh, uh, the, the notion that the foreigners are actually pushing for a partition of China. But because the main conflict was still between the communists and the Guomindang then. So the communists were accusing the Guomindang of selling out. Same story. You know, so there is another partition of China coming in with Japan coming in, right? The Guomindang is selling out, is not fighting against. So you still have that story. And the full turnaround comes in 49 with a new recent history of China. Uh, which then uh, makes a clear point and saying, yes, you know, there were the foreign powers were uh, trying to partition China and it's the patriotic resistance of China which prevented this catastrophe and we, the communists, are the mainstay of that, you know, so story. Yeah. And so is that why nowadays the narrative is very much, oh, well, in history, foreign powers came, undermined China and... That, yes. That's why the, the narrative continues today, because of the communists. Yes, yes. And that has been now become a mainstay of sort of, uh, if you want, uh, PRC guilt tripping of especially the United States, you know, when uh, actually uh, under, under um, uh, uh, that must have been under... Uh, Clinton, yeah, uh, Paulson and the others went to uh, the, 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 the head of the, the, um, the, the treasury. They went to China uh, and they were sat down by the uh, Hu Jintao at the time, you know, to a three hour lecture, you know, on uh, the injustices uh, imposed on uh, uh, China by the Americans and imperialism and colonialism and so on and so forth, you know. And, uh, uh, and this was in the post-Vietnam generation in the United States, actually, uh, to this day, has been a rather powerful tool of the Chinese, which was very consciously used, you know, namely that they, they were very well aware that there was a long-standing American policy to be committed, as a matter of fact, to the territorial integrity of China, even against the Soviet Union, when they tried to, to nuke the, the, the test sites in Xinjiang, the Americans were rigidly opposed and blocked it, right? So this, uh, so they know there is this commitment. And that means they can go from morning to night, you know, accusing the United States, you know, of trying to undermine China, split it, you know, with a, a colored revolution, you know, all kinds of democratic ideas and something like that. They can talk like from morning to night like that. Doesn't change American policy because that's a long standing tradition there, you know. So they get it both ways, you know, they can guilt trip the Americans and don't have to pay it. A very, very nice uh, uh, way, which again goes, as a matter of fact, back to the uh, to 1900 because there was a cartoon at the time I remember here in an American uh, cartoon journal which was uh, uh, talking about uh, they have two um, two Chinese um, uh, officials were talking about the uh, uh, tragedy of China so one says to the other you know uh, everybody uh, is in the international world is against us you know? and the other says well that is the great advantage we have. If only one would be against it, we would be creamed, you know, by everybody being against it. They neutralize each other, right? So the understanding, you know, that somehow these foreigners to prevent an imbalance of power, where as a matter of committed to the sovereignty of China, maintaining the sovereignty and territorial integrity of China, that was something which was a very clear calculus in the Qing uh, uh, mind, and you look at, uh, at diplomatic papers, the foreign diplomats were quite aware that the Chinese were, knew that, you know, and played with it. So it has become a kind of a, 
a very also kind of an old style uh, tradition of the Chinese to be aware of this kind of a quandary the Western powers were in and therefore make a happy use of it. And in the American post-Vietnam War generation, where everybody was getting sort of uh, nervous of the imperialist imposition of America and so on and so forth, people tried to make good on that. So you had a big market there in the United States, especially in academia, but also in among sort of people who moved into politics, that somehow this imperial past has been made clear cut has to be made. So suddenly this story became accepted as the authentic Chinese narrative, which is very charming, you know, but there has just no substance to it. And so you spoke at our 60th anniversary symposium on a panel with Mark Elliott, Jing Su and Rowan Flad about the study of history in China today. Um, and indeed, one of the big questions was about how today there is a very strong narrative about what happened in history. And if you are revisionist about that, then somehow you're also not just wrong, but against the state. How does this question of territorial integrity that we're seeing today, Xi Jinping talking about you know, the Spratly Islands and South China Sea, is it challenging for Chinese scholars in particular to go against the official narrative? Well, the official, the, the master narrative is the master narrative in China, and that has a different strength than it has in states with other structures. There is, as a matter of fact, a long and widely followed tradition among Chinese intellectuals to accept the master narrative as just a given, you know, and do their own research basically in the footnote part, you know, so you will have some kind of little undermining of the master narrative, perhaps in some little detailed research or by inviting a foreign scholar who says things you would yourself perhaps like to say, right, and uh, but won't say, you know, so there is this kind of what you might, you might call that opportunistic, but you know, scholars are not heroes, you know, and uh, they just see where their bread's buttered and uh, uh, follow that. And I don't think there is some grand difference between that in, in different countries. But so for Chinese, that is quite a, quite a clear affair. But the more interesting thing is that because so much of the historiography of China, both within China and among Sinologists, is somehow China-centered, as if China is somewhere on Mars or on some kind of a, a other planet there. Well, it isn't. And so the entire process we are talking about, as a matter of fact, is something where at every single step you have a very close transcultural interaction there. You take the, the notion of sovereignty. Now, the notion of sovereignty basically gets its market value in China directly after the First World War, when the then American President Wilson was elevating the notion of sovereignty as a key concept for the successor states of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He wasn't thinking about anywhere else in the world, but he spread that idea with a thing which was called the Committee on Public Information. And the Committee on Public Information had a China branch. And this China branch was very active. And they then translated Wilson's speeches on sovereignty, both the wartime and the peace speeches, into Chinese, distributed for free to opinion leaders across China. You talk 20,000 copies. And the next thing you have is that the agenda of the Committee on Public Information, namely to prevent Japan from getting a grip of China while America was engaged in Europe, became the leading ideology for the May 4th rebels and for much of what came later. So you have the notion of sovereignty is an important notion. 
right? And now it has become a kind of a, the holy grail of PRC foreign relations. And the United States is, of course, the main imperial power, which is undermining Chinese sovereignty on every single step they are doing, whether in ideas or in genetic research or you name it. You know, I mean, the field is just unbelievable, right? So the, the, the effect is, of course, that the interaction of the Chinese lines of argumentation of even the metaphors they're using, you know, with international vocabulary, international concepts, partition, sovereignty, and so on and so forth, is extremely close. Namely, you have a type of historiography which describes this as an internal Chinese development of which there just is nothing, you know, and this is really a big flaw in much of historical scholarship, that these transcultural interactions are really neglected and ignored. And that is also true, of course, for the links with the Soviet Union. I mean, you talk talk about people dealing with modern Chinese literature and if of the 50s and 60s and something like that, which is essentially, you know, interacting mostly with socialist camp literature. Well, most people in modern Chinese literature haven't read a thing of that. I have a, a broad question that ties in with a lot of what we've been talking about, which is uses of the Chinese past. Um, so we had a great podcast with Lee Jenko from the London School of Economics about this particular topic. It seems like there's a very complex relationship with the, the, the official narrative of what happens in China in terms of history and how the government uses certain select elements of the Chinese past, either to ensure some sort of domestic ideology or nowadays we're seeing it as sort of a soft power, to use Joe Nye's term, abroad. How is the Chinese government selecting what it's going to use, and I'm thinking especially for the neo-Confucian revival that we're seeing at the moment, to further that agenda? Well, I mean, this is a perfectly pragmatic way of picking out certain things and narratives which seem to be useful for very present-day purposes. So either you have factional struggles, and let's say you have a discussion about policy in the 1960s. So you suddenly you dig out a, a typing leader who wrote a confession after he was arrested just before he was executed, in which he was halfway critical of some of his other colleagues in there, Li Xiuchang. So uh, the effect is uh, that then you use that historical figure to attack, in this case, uh, people who were still officially in high ranks, like Liu Shaoqi or things like that. And in fact, they are indirectly attacked that way. This is so you can have at personam you uses of history, or you can have more general uses. Let's say you say you want to, want to establish, you know, the unequaled antiquity and continuity of Chinese culture. So then you have a big government program since the mid-90s about Xia and the, the Shang and the Zhou dynasty, which tried to establish that these two earlier dynasties, as a matter of fact, really existed. And so that gets then huge amounts of money. Or you have another point is that you think, well, in this now much wealthier Chinese society, people are sometimes not taking things as obediently as they have done earlier. So there is a little bit of social trouble there, which was an observation first made by Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore in the 80s, where he said, well, suddenly people dare to go out and strike or things like that. And then come in the neo-Confucians here from the United States and said, well, this is what we really should do, namely put Confucianism into classrooms, into the schools, and give people a basic understanding to obey to authority. And from there, it gets to Korea and Taiwan, and then the PRC says, yes, this is what we need to. In comes Confucianism. And that comes with a level of, how should I say, 
adaptive flexibility among the scholars pretending that has anything to do with Confucianism, which is quite surprising. But, you know, it's a pragmatic decision to do something to prevent a kind of a fraying of family and uh, social control over individual behavior, which is difficult in sort of more wealthy environments, you know. So off you go, and in comes Confucianism. If that doesn't work that way, it's going to be dropped like a, like a rotten apple. And if it works, it's going to be supported all out. You know? So this is a completely pragmatic thing. I mean, the Communist Party has been the instrumental thing in denouncing Confucianism as a feudal ideology. And now he says, well, but today we need some Confucian elements to maintain social order. And if it turns out it can't deliver, then they don't just go for Confucianism. They don't rely on it. They're not stupid. They say, okay, what we need is basically a kind of a passport of social behavior, you know, where in a digitized form of a passport, everything you do from the credits you're taking to the, the, the speed tickets you're getting from the school your kid going to, to comments you made to your co-worker in an office or something like that, that's all nicely put in there. So you have a, a level of social control there where they don't rely on some uh, highfalutin uh, neo-Confucian words. They are rather pragmatic, you know, and keep their things down. And, you know, as a backup after uh, 1989, when, as a matter of fact, they had no type of police force which could handle this Tiananmen occupation there. So they went into the military, which is stupid by any degree, because the military has no idea to handle these kind of things. And they, in fact, they didn't have an idea. So next thing they do, you know, they develop the kind of armed police, which is, has no other purpose but riot police. And that's now 600,000 people. And so wherever something happens, these guys come brooding in. And you have cameras all over. You know? So you have a integrated system there where you know, all the little pieces go. And whether that is going to hold the water uh, like a big dike, the guards may know. <laughs> so uh, the Fairbank Five, it's quick fire. So what is your favorite Chinese food? Tofu. Because it has little taste and a, a nice consistency and uh, avoids what I should not eat, namely too much meat. Um, your favorite place in China? I don't dare to say it. My favorite place in China is a place in Yunnan called Sima. And I was stranded there in 1981, you know, uh, with a Russian propeller plane. Uh, for a week, they couldn't fly because the clouds were too low and they didn't have a radar. And so I was staying in a local guest house. And the cook, who was a uh, demobilized uh, People's Revolution Army soldier who stayed there, he decided, OK, I'm going to show this foreigner a thing or two. So I had one week of the most sensational food I've ever in my life. So somehow for me, you know, is the center of Chinese cuisine and is the great highlight. You know, you get grilled locusts and, uh, uh, you know, snakes and shapes you wouldn't believe, things, you know, you wouldn't dream of you could eat, you know, and they're very good. Um, your favorite Chung Yu? I don't think I can come up with or one. Or a Chinese phrase. Do you have a favorite Chinese saying? Yes. This is a poster which a Han Dynasty Zen Buddhist monk, who was also a poet, hung on his wall. And it translates very simply, day for day is a good day. And after that comes an exclamation mark, namely, you better make it that way. Oh, so carpe diem. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a book that you have read recently that you would recommend? Well, this is Eva's Dottir, 
Anthropology of Chinese Archaeology, University of British Columbia Press some four or five years ago. I just read that. That was a very interesting book. And our last of the five is a, a class or an experience that changed your thinking about China. Well, I when I was 21, I decided to move from Bonn University in Germany to Heidelberg after having read a book by Gadamer, Truth and Messet. Uh, and I felt that was something uh, which would be the right thing for me to do in Chinese studies. Now, he was dealing with European philosophy or something like that. So the Gadamer seminar on uh, Plato dialogue taught me, as a matter of fact, how to crawl into the skin of a historical reader and explore through that perspective what the context and reading of such a text would be. And that is a method which I have then used in Chinese studies throughout. So that was, in terms of Chinese studies, the most influential class. And on that note, thank you very much for being with us today. <laughs> well, it was a pleasure. <laughs>